members in Eastern Europe and even larger countries like Germany and France are very concerned with the potential for Russian aggression because uh, the Russians did, in fact, uh, slice off a piece of a sovereign country, Ukraine, and annex it. to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot. I'll be your host for this episode. We're joined today by a special guest from the 450th Civil Affairs Battalion Airborne. Roberto Carmack is a specialist, but he also has a PhD, so uh, we'll call you Dr. Carmack for this episode, if that's okay with you. That sounds good, sir. We want to talk with you today about your background and the connection between what you'd studied and, and what you're doing on the civilian side now, and how you think that may tie into civil affairs. So you're really a history buff. You earned a master's degree and a PhD in history. If you could, for everyone, describe your doctoral thesis and what your focus was. Sure. So I defended my uh, thesis in 2015, and it's about uh, Central Asia during World War II, and in particular about mobilization in Kazakhstan. Uh, basically, what I've done is uh, compare how Soviet authorities in Russia and in Central Asia mobilized all these different populations uh, for the war effort, from Muslim Central Asians to Russians to uh, people who were deported to the region during the war. So it's mainly designed to understand uh, how mobilization worked in practice and how uh, all these ethnic policies uh, changed as a result of the war. To conduct your research, did you have to go to those countries? Yes, I did. I uh, spent quite a bit of time in Kazakhstan, about a year. I uh, mostly did archival work to uh, locate these uh, government documents that discuss these policies. And also did uh, quite a few bit, uh, quite, a, quite a lot of research in uh, Moscow, something like three months. But was that speaking Russian and, and other languages? Right. So in Kazakhstan, uh, you can get by using Russian. I do speak Kazakh, but most of the documents for that period were written in Russian because there's a heavy bias uh, towards the Russian language in all Soviet regions. And so everyone else in the listening to this episode knows um, specialist slash Dr. Carmack speaks multiple languages and is actually, you're, you're getting paid by the Army for, uh, what do you have now, Russian and Spanish on the record? That's right, yeah. Okay. Well, I would encourage everyone to uh, go ahead and take those language exams and to learn another language. How has the process been for you in, in taking those exams and getting paid? You know, these exams are in some ways difficult and others not too bad. Um, I came to Russian pretty late in life. I started studying the language in grad school, so I had to learn it basically from nothing. It took many years to get to a level where I can speak it and read it comfortably, um, and it requires frequent practice. Spanish was technically my first language, so I was able to um, reacquire it through review. But yeah, I mean, there are many, many soldiers that have... Uh, language abilities that they learned in their households or through education. So like you, I definitely encourage them to uh, seek the opportunity to take the exam because it's really great for your record and um, the money certainly helps. Absolutely. Yeah. A little extra cash on top of the, uh, the battle assembly pay is wonderful. Yeah. Dr. Carmack, I wanted to, uh, to talk to you about 
the connection between the U.S. military and what's going on in Russia, and to provide some background about the uh, the Russian Federation. So, uh, if we could try to break down the armed forces of the Russian Federation uh, and how it compares to the U.S., it's my understanding that they have the service branches include ground forces, aerospace, navy, strategic missile, airborne, and special operations forces. I'm not sure if they have anything related to civil affairs. And they have conscription, so citizens must join the military uh, if they're age 18 to 27 for 12 months of service, which, based on my experience in the U.S. Uh, Army, yeah, that would take up a lot of your training anyway. And that there was one estimate I found that mentioned approximately 5.4% of GDP spent on the military. Does that stack up against what you know, and, and how would you rank the strengths of the Russian military compared to those of the U.S.? Yeah, so that 5.4% of military of GDP going to military expenditures, that's actually quite high uh, compared to most countries in Europe. Uh, you know, since 2008, the Russian government has initiated a pretty con comprehensive program of military reform. Basically, their goal is to emphasize quality over quantity uh, and modernize uh, the military. So, you know, in general, from a technological and even strategic viewpoint, uh, it doesn't seem that the Russians can match the United States or uh, the NATO alliance in terms of sheer capacity. But thanks to these reforms, their military capacity has generally uh, gone up. For example, uh, in 2008, uh, your listeners probably know that Russia and Georgia, the former Soviet Republic, waged a short but pretty intense war. Uh, there were a lot of problems there, uh, mainly because the different branches of the Russian military and even individual elements within the Russian army weren't coordinating their efforts. So there's a lot of miscommunications that definitely degraded their battlefield capacity. But now if we fast forward to recent events in Ukraine and Syria, it's very obvious that the Russian ability to command and control their forces has improved dramatically. So are they a match for the United States and NATO? In the strictest sense, no, but it would be a mistake to underestimate them because they're improving their capacity uh, practically every year. Okay. Well, you brought up a couple countries there as examples. Uh, you talked about Georgia, uh, Syria, Ukraine, mm. and I wanted to talk to you about the idea of a buffer zone. I've read about it very often, and I think it's a plausible argument. Uh, we, I've read connected to uh, geopolitics and the importance of geography. Uh, so do you agree that the Russian Federation needs a buffer, buffer zones, and what evidence do you have to support that idea? Absolutely. And that's not only something that I believe, but I think that the Russian government is definitely adhering to the military and geopolitical strategy. Um, you know, really, the creation of these buffer zones is the only way to prevent offensive action against the Russian Federation, at least from the perspective of the Kremlin and the people making defense policy. You know, the modern history of the Russian state is just filled with examples of foreign powers invading uh, through vulnerable frontiers. Uh, the Nazi invasion during World War II is just a major example of that. Um, so... 
it's not altogether surprising that Russian leaders are trying to keep uh, their opponents like the United States uh, and NATO away from their borders. Uh, for example, that was one of the major reasons why the Russians decided to uh, intervene in Ukraine in the past few years. They need to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO, and that way, by keeping NATO forces out of Ukraine, they have more strategic flexibility to wage uh, an effective defense should there be a war with uh, the alliance. And what's the connection with Georgia and the Caucasus region? Yeah, uh, Russian military and diplomatic strategy there is largely similar to what's going on in Ukraine. I referenced the 2008 war with Georgia before. And, you know, this narrow strip of territory between the Caspian and the Black Seas is of high strategic importance for the Russians. Uh, not only is it a oil transfer point, uh, but many of these countries in the past, like Georgia, uh, have tried or at least flirted with the notion of joining NATO and establishing very close relations with the EU. Uh, the Russians are trying to prevent that by any means at their disposal through economic pressure and, if necessary, military pressure. So we can see the creation of a buffer zone there as a preeminent Russian concern. Okay. There's another area I wanted to bring up, uh, and I haven't heard about it since uh, Russia took over the Crimean Peninsula in 2014. What has happened since then? Yeah, so I think one of the reasons you haven't heard much out of Crimea is because the annexation has become normalized in a sense. Western media outlets have grown accustomed to it, and they see it as uh, something that's an established fact. But Although there's not a lot of armed conflict in the region like there is in those two separatist provinces in eastern Ukraine of Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, there's still plenty going on. On the whole, Russian control in the peninsula is quite stable. Uh, the Russians have militarily fortified the peninsula, so any sort of uh, armed incursion from the Ukrainian side uh, is not really feasible. Uh, the Russians have accused the Ukrainian government of sending in these small special operations type teams to co conduct sabotage operations and collect intel. Uh, but for the most part, um, the peninsula is militarily secure. So inside, the Russians are slowly working to consolidate their control over uh, the gover governing apparatus and even the population. Uh, according to several independent polls, mostly conducted by uh, Western research outfits, uh, the majority of Crimeans, something like 80%, support Russian control over uh, the Crimean Peninsula. Um, and this largely breaks down along ethnic lines. Um, and it's not too surprising that most ethnic Russians there uh, support Russia as opposed to Ukraine. There are groups, however, that are strongly opposed to Russian control. One of them, and perhaps the most important, is the uh, Crimean Tatars. They're a Turkic Muslim group that's native to the peninsula, and the Russians have been treating them uh, extremely poorly by uh, arresting their leaders, shutting down their representative institutions, and silencing their press. So there's a lot of potential there for future conflicts, so we'll have to see uh, what happens within the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you brought up... Um... Ethnic Russians. I've read that ethnic Russians are in decline, and that may be one reason why Russia is trying to um, expand again to include non-ethnic Russians within the Federation. What's the history, and where do you think we're headed? 
Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, there's no question that Russia is facing a demographic crisis. Um, you know, the birth rate is extremely low uh, for a European country. And really, within the next few decades, it's not going to be likely that they'll be even able to support their military force at current levels. It's something that the leadership is well aware of and is worried about. Hence, they're instituting these uh, pro-birth policies in an attempt to kind of boost the birth rate. And part of the consequence of this is that we have to remember, you know, the technical name for the country is the Russian Federation because it's a federation of many ethnic groups uh, led by the Russians, but including uh, many groups that are um, non-Slavic and even Muslim. Uh, I'm talking about groups like the Chechens and the Tatars, and there are many others. These Muslim national or ethnic groups uh, tend to have a higher birth rate than the native Russian population. So what we're going to see in the next uh, 50 years or so is that these uh, Muslim groups are going to gradually outstrip the Russian population. And it's obviously going to have a tremendous impact on uh, Russian national identity and even their military policies. Have you seen pushback recently or, or ethnic Russians pushing back against non-ethnic Russians, or are they more inclusive? Well, on the one hand, no. When we're talking about groups like the Tatars, uh, Russians consider them to be uh, citizens of the Russian Federation and not too different from them. Most Tatars speak Russian, they're aware of Russian cultural values, etc., uh, etc. Et Where the pushback is coming in is with migrants from Central Asia. We're talking about ex-Soviet countries that aren't part of the Russian Federation anymore. Countries like uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. Uh, these countries sent uh, huge numbers of labor migrants to work in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg. And yes, there's tremendous pushback against these populations. This has been going on for more than 10 years. Uh, there's been a huge uh, upswing in racist sentiment that breaks down along racial lines and anti-immigrant uh, sentiment. And you're right, as the Russian population experiences this demographic crisis, it seems likely that these kind of extremist sentiments are going to increase. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. 1CA is under the umbrella of the Civil Affairs Association, a 501c19 veterans organization. People can support the podcast through tax-deductible donations. Money raised will be used to send junior NCOs and officers to two events hosted by the CA Association. The first is a symposium held each fall. The second is a roundtable and workshop held in the spring. Each junior NCO and officer selected will also receive a membership to the CA Association. If you'd like to support the podcast, then please visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. That's civilaffairsassoc.org. And please remember that all donations are tax deductible. Thanks for your support. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. I want to ask you about as the, the Russian bear flexes its muscles in um, Eastern Europe, where, how much flexibility, how much give do you think there is um, within uh, NATO circles and those Eastern European countries? And where do you think, uh, if we call it a red line or 
Where, where do you think Europe would feel Russia is going too far if they started to annex more territories like Latvia, for example? Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, so if we're talking about the Russian sphere of influence or their perceived sphere of influence, I think we can divide these countries into three broad categories. The first uh, includes one of the countries that you mentioned, uh, Latvia, and also Estonia, Lithuania, the Baltic countries. Here, the United States and NATO needs to draw a very firm and unambiguous red line because, you know, these are members of the NATO alliance. So if the Russians were to outrightly annex these countries or even subvert them uh, by fanning ethnic conflict, that would really undermine uh, the foundation of the NATO alliance since it's designed to repel Russian aggression after all. So there, there can be no ambiguity that we will uh, respond very aggressively to aggression in that sphere. But when we're talking about other countries, uh, there's a second category and here I have in mind countries like Ukraine and Georgia that, of course, are important to U.S. and even European interests, but our ability to shape events in these countries is rather limited. Here, I think we should push back whenever it's feasible, but probably not at the expense of sparking a wider military or diplomatic confrontation. And finally, there are certain countries where Russian influence is really predominant. Here I'm talking about Armenia. Uh, the Armenians are in some ways completely beholden to Moscow, Tajikistan and Central Asia along the Afghan border, uh, where the Russians have a great deal of military and even economic influence, or, or a country like Belarus. Um, Russia's strongest ally in Europe and um, a country that's, you know, quite dictatorial like Russia itself. Here, the United States doesn't have much to offer these countries because its economic and diplomatic power is very far away. These governments aren't used to dealing with the United States. And here, uh, we might have to refrain from pushing back in any, any substantial way because it just wouldn't be a good use of our limited resources. Right. I think in the last few years, the United States has returned to pre-positioning assets and returning some equipment that was taken out of Europe. Is that what you've been tracking the last few years? Do you think that we are now increasing our footprint permanently or through exercises in Europe to push back against Russia? After 1991, the United States certainly started withdrawing substantial military forces from Europe. The view was that Russia was now weak and didn't pose a substantial geopolitical threat. But this has begun to change. It really started to change in 2008 uh, when Vladimir Putin initiated a foreign policy that was quite aggressive, at least compared to Russian policy in the past. But the situation changed radically in 2014. Now, all of these small uh, NATO members in Eastern Europe and even larger countries like Germany and France are very concerned with the potential for Russian aggression because uh, the Russians did, in fact, uh, slice off a piece of a sovereign country, Ukraine, and annex it. Uh, this is uh, almost unprecedented in Europe uh, in the sense, you know, since World War II, that is. 
so now there's been a lot of pressure uh, for the United States to redeploy forces into Eastern Europe in order to create a ready force that could uh, deter Russian aggression and, if necessary, repulse it. So, yeah, the United States has been more or less serious about reinforcing uh, NATO's eastern border. Now there's a, a battalion-sized element in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland that's manned partially by the United States. And uh, the United States is also prepositioning uh, heavy equipment uh, to have it ready in case of a conflict. So in the future, it's very likely that uh, these countries are going to continue requesting U.S. support and the and the reinforcement of U.S. forces and that um, United States is going to go along with it in order to send a clear message to uh, the Russians that we're ready, that, that Eastern Europe is not a place where you can meddle with uh, impunity. Right. And civil affairs units, active active duty are certainly there, but also reserve units rotate through the exercises as a part of supporting the special and conventional forces in there. Roberto, I wanted to ask you about influence operations. So uh, the United States saw that big time uh, in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Uh, so we learned, uh, most Americans learned how extensive the influence operations have become. Could you describe how Russia has been meddling in European elections in recent years, uh, and, and what other countries are doing to combat those efforts. Right. So, as you intimated in your question, Russian meddling in the U.S. election is really just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, within the past two years or so, the Russians have interfered with elections across Europe, uh, from the United Kingdom to Germany and others. The goal here is to try to support candidates that are perceived to be sympathetic towards Russian interests and also to support groups uh, that are on the political fringes of society in an effort to destabilize these political systems and undermine uh, democratic values in these countries. And, you know, these efforts are wide-ranging, and even countries as far away as Mexico and others in the Western Hemisphere have complained that the Russian government is meddling in their electoral processes. So this is really part and parcel of a comprehensive Russian cyber strategy to shape the international environment to suit Russian interests. Uh, and the election meddling is just one component of that. Okay. Uh, so... Yes, uh, NATO and the United States have obviously begun to recognize the danger that these kind of intrusive cyber efforts pose. About a month ago, uh, NATO finally uh, established a brand new cyber command, and the goal here is to better coordinate the alliance's defensive and offensive capabilities in the cybersphere. So in the near future, we're probably going to see a situation where cyber warfare becomes a very important and, and in many senses, the primary proxy for uh, geopolitical conflict between the United States and Russia and between Russia and our European allies. So there's going to be something of an arms race that develops, I predict, between Russia and the West to develop cyber weapons, to develop countermeasures, and to outflank uh, each other in the cybersphere. So most likely, these kind of... Uh, efforts to undermine our electoral process, to influence our electoral process, uh, they're going to continue because the Russians see this as a cheap way and relatively harmless from their perspective way of, of influencing us to their benefit. Well, you know, our job for the Army is civil affairs, military government. How do you think this folds into the work that we do for Army Reserve and civil affairs? Or, or how do you think the active duty 
forces and civil affairs. Um, you know, looking at actually make it broader than that. So Army or Marine Corps. How, how do you think we should fold in what's happening in cyber with civil affairs? Uh, that's a good question. You know, civil affairs is a branch of uh, the Army that doesn't really have a clear cyber function, offensively or defensively. Obviously, we're impacted by, uh, you know, cyber attacks against the military will obviously uh, degrade civil affairs operations. But really, one thing we can do is to try to ensure that, for example, civilian areas in contested zones like Ukraine and the Baltic states have a cyber capability. Uh, what that means in practice, they need computers, they need internet access, they need networks. And that's something civil affairs can plug into and it's something that we can uh, help ensure the survival of on the cheap. You know, it's something that uh, doesn't have a clear military component, but we need to make sure that these uh, countries have the potential uh, to um, develop the weapons to fight in the cybersphere. Yeah, I would think it would be helpful for um, ensuring that if people are getting messages through the internet, and if they have a connection to the internet, they would see messages from uh, U.S. or allied forces regarding uh, movements or uh, to, to avoid tripping up any maneuver commander's operations essentially stay out of our way or to uh, then find out what the impact of operations is on the local population through the internet, through chat rooms, through uh, message boards, or through uh, news stories that are posted online. Absolutely. And we have to keep in mind that some of these Eastern European countries are highly plugged in. Uh, Estonia is a good example. Many, many of their government functions depend almost completely on the Internet. And about 10 years ago, Moscow orchestrated a pretty comprehensive attack on uh, Estonia's cyber infrastructure. It was devastating. It only lasted a few days, but the Russians showed that if they wanted to, they could absolutely, crit they could absolutely uh, cripple that country. Uh, so I think the U.S., you know, would need to, you know, fortify these networks uh, to resist that because uh, it could be so devastating for the countries involved and it would have all sorts of uh, civil affairs implications as uh, critical government infrastructure, things like hospitals uh, shut down. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, Roberto, I wanted to ask you about um, what brought you over to civil affairs. So why, why join the Army and then why join civil affairs branch? Uh, well, I joined the Army because I'm obviously interested in military history, and uh, I wanted to get out of the library. I wanted to do something a little bit more uh, hands-on, and I figured uh, the Army was the most logical place to do that. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, uh, contribute to, uh, to uh, my country as best as I could. Um, civil affairs was a more or less natural choice for me because it's one of the uh, professions in the army where people put a premium on knowing about the cultures of foreign peoples and how to interact with them. That's key to uh, civil affairs operations. Uh, and since I'm naturally inclined to study foreign cultures and foreign peoples, it seemed like a very um, logical choice for me. Well, we're really, we value you uh, being a part of the unit. We think that you're a fantastic addition to civil affairs and clearly know a lot about what's happening in the region uh, with the Russian Federation and its neighbors. And I wanted to ask you uh, to close this episode by asking you about some references, where you would recommend other members of the civil affairs community or um, United Action Partners 
Where do they? Where should they go for information about what's happening uh, within the Russian Federation in the region? Uh, one of the best websites that reports on the broader uh, Eurasian region, uh, with an emphasis on the former Soviet Union, is Eurasianet.org. Uh, they have good reporting that's hard to find in other more mainstream outlets. Um, New York Times, when they do report on Russia, it tends to be a pretty high quality. They have good reporters that are well-versed in Russian politics and current affairs. For the Russian speakers, there's Commerçant.ru. Commerçant is a pretty good independent Russian newspaper that doesn't adhere to the government line, uh, which is hard to find in Russia today. Those are the main sources that I use to stay abreast of uh, these contemporary issues. Thank you very much. Well, Roberto Carmack, thank you very much for joining us in the 1CA podcast. Uh, my pleasure, sir. Thank you. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.